0: Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters, and Walters would like to take the last few games of the season to thank all Nationals fans for supporting Walters this year. Walters knows it's been difficult with mask mandates, social distancing, and an awkward transition from contending to rebuilding.
1: Here's to 2022 and the hope for more fun times together. Stay safe, Nats fans. We'll see you next year. We're driven
2: by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate Need to hire? You need
3: Indeed. The ovation is a standing ovation for Nationals first baseman Ryan Zimmerman. As everyone stands and applauds. And he takes his helmet off and waves it to the crowd. And how about... Christian Vasquez, the catcher, walking out out of the grass in front of home plate and faced home plate until Ryan Zimmerman said okay. The wind-up, the 1-2. Swing and a miss on a ball in the dirt. Avila applies the tag, and that's strikeout number nine in the Major League debut of Joanna Doan. Here's the pitch. Swing and a drive to deep center field. Thomas going back, looking up, going, going, and gone. Goodbye. Rafael Devers has done it again, his second home run of the day, his third of the last two days. A titanic shot out of the batter's eye, Berm in center field. It's a two-run home run here in the top of the ninth inning, and Boston is in front for the first time today, 7-5. to The wind by Pavetta, the 0-2 to Soto, breaking ball in there, a curveball strike three called, and the Red Sox... Are going to the postseason. Nick Pavetta retires the side in order, strikes out Juan Soto looking, and that ends the season for the Nationals with their
0: 97th loss. And welcome to Natchat for Monday, October 4th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of Massinsports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. It is over. The Nationals 2021 season is over. 65 and 97 ends up being the final record. Nats end up getting swept in three games by the Boston Red Sox at Nationals Park. It will be the Red Sox hosting the New York Yankees in the American League wildcard game on Tuesday night. And we now embark on an offseason filled with questions and intrigue. If you're a Nationals fan, I know the season wasn't what anyone wanted it to be, but this is actually a very interesting time right now, To be a Nats fan, Mike Rizzo spoke at length earlier on Sunday. We'll get to that in a bit. But we, on Sunday, had one of the most emotional scenes in Nationals Park history. Heck, maybe the most emotional scene in Nationals Park history. So this was a 7-5 loss to the Red Sox in a game in which Johan Adone was terrific in his Major League debut. This was a game in which Eric Fetty and Kyle Finnegan struggled big time out of the bullpen. But this was a game in which Nats fans said goodbye to Ryan Zimmerman if, in fact, a goodbye was warranted. And we still don't know But that was some scene in that top of the eighth inning, Zimmerman taking the field and then exiting the game, and the standing ovation from not just fans, but also players from both teams, Davey Martinez limping onto the field to hug Zimmerman, very powerful scene, and then the stoic Zimmerman breaking down and crying.
3: Zim mimicking Davey's gates, and they embrace in front of the first base side dugout.
1: That
0: was a pretty unforgettable
1: moment, Mark. It was, and I'll be honest, Al, I didn't see it coming. I think we all kind of wondered all along, okay, is he going to pull any of his starters at some point during the game? And obviously Zimmerman would probably have a moment like that. But because the game was still so competitive and because it looked like he would get another at-bat before it was over, now it turns out because the Nats did nothing offensively in the final three innings, his spot wouldn't have come up again. So maybe that was for the best. But I kind of felt like he was just going to play it all out and sort of respect the Red Sox and the idea of the pennant race and keep everyone out there. And so it did create a little bit of a difficult dynamic for Davy and for the Nationals. You want to put your best foot forward. You want to give the Red Sox everything you can because the game means a lot to them and obviously the Blue Jays in the end. But you also want to make sure you properly honor the people you want to on the final day of the season. So it did make for a little bit of a strange thing. But from the moment that he took his first at bat, Zimmerman did, and got the sustained ovation where Christian Vazquez, the Red Sox, Catcher, the plate umpire, Field and Culberth, they both sort of stalled to give Zimmerman time to step out of the box and doff his helmet to them. And that was the first time that you noticed underneath the sunglasses, maybe him tearing up. You kind of realized, okay, this may be a little bit more today than we thought, whether he knew it was coming or not. Now, it turns out he said, in talking with Heather last night, I think if I do retire this offseason or I didn't do anything today, I would have regretted it. And so he was on board with it, although Davey had already planned to do it anyways. I'm not sure he fully expected it to play out the way that it did, but you could tell that it touched him a lot to have the players on both sides doing that, the fans, everything else. And that was as emotional as we're ever going to see Ryan Zimmerman. We don't know what he's like at home, but on a baseball field, that was as emotional as it gets. And everything from that point on, the rest of the game, and well after the game, when he was still out on the field with his full family, it sure said to me, here's a guy who is at least at peace if this is the end of the road for him? I don't think he has fully decided, but if he does decide this is it, he went out how he wanted to and he did everything to make sure that he and his family and the fans got to savor this final day.
0: Yeah, I mean, the whole thing played out so well that I said to myself watching it, I wonder if he's going to announce his retirement after the game just because it kind of reeked of he made up his mind. He told Davey that he had made up his mind. And they just had not announced anything publicly. Now, it turns out that that's not the case. And, you know, we'll take Zimmerman at his word. He still has not made up his mind. I think that is plausible because, as we've discussed, there's a lot to be determined about what next season will look like. But it just came off so perfectly that you were kind of like, hmm, I wonder if Zimmerman, you know, went to Davy in a quiet moment in the the last week and was like, yeah, man, this is going to be it for me. But, you know, it reminded me of the most emotional thing I've ever seen watching a baseball game, which was the Cal Ripken lap around Camden Yards when he broke the Lou Gehrig consecutive game streak. And this reminded me of that in a few ways. Number one, the Ripken lap was not orchestrated. It was kind of spur of the moment. Ripken was, if you remember, shoved out onto the field by his teammates. He didn't really want to do it. Ryan Zimmerman has reminded me so much of Cal Ripken in so many different ways, I think Zimmerman, in a lot of ways, is the Cal Ripken for this generation of Washington, D.C. area baseball fans. I mean, when I grew up in this area, all we had was the Orioles. So, like, Ripken was the guy. But now, if you're a Nats fan and of a certain age, Zimmerman has been your guy. So, I don't know. To me, like, there are a lot of those parallels. And it was just a really cool moment. Like, even if Zimmerman comes back and plays next year, this is something you'll never forget. And for a franchise that obviously just came here beginning with the 2005 season, and for a franchise that hasn't had many players worthy of being celebrated like this, to have a moment like this is really special. This was a terrible season with, honestly, some ugliness. You know, there have been some ugly things this year. Like the Starling Castro thing was ugly. The game being suspended due to gunfire outside Nats Park was ugly. This was a beautiful moment, and uh, I'm really glad that it happened like this.
1: Yeah, I think everyone is. I think the only thing that I wish that was different, and there was nothing they could do about this, I wish the game was against the Mets or the Marlins or somebody else that was out of it and so that there wasn't anything at stake. It just made for that little bit of awkwardness because, look, the Red Sox players who are fighting for their playoff lives are now taking a break to step out onto the field and applaud and celebrate him and actually Alex Avila as well an inning later. And it just made it a little bit weird. And because there were a lot of Red Sox fans there as well, now they all saluted him. I mean, it was genuine. All of it was all for Zim. But the perfect scenario, I think, would have been a game that didn't have any meaning to it itself. But that's a small little complaint here. I agree with you about what you said about Cal Ripken. I think it's a perfect comparison. And I think Zim has always strived to sort of be that type of player. And I thought what was so telling his quote to us afterwards was that when he you know, agreed with Heather that they should do something, he said, you know, the feeling in the park, I think it was, you know, it was good to do that more for... I would say them, than me, I guess, is the best best answer. Like he understood that even if he was okay with the idea of just deciding in December, I'm done, I'll have a press conference and that's it, that he knew that fans would be let down by that, that they wanted their moment to salute him. And that's a very Cal Ripken thing. Cal was always conscious of the fans and understood his place within the game. So I thought that was kind of telling as well. And and you're right, it's a perfect comparison for him. The only other thing I'm left with at the end of all this is now, if he does come back, is that a little weird? It, it was such a final, it was so much closure to it. I don't know if I've ever seen any athlete have that kind of moment and then come back and play the next year for the same team again. It'll be a little strange if that does happen. But to be sure, he said it afterwards, he still believes he can play. That is not a question in his mind. It's really a question of, does he want to put his body through it? Does he want to spend time with his family? And where does he see the direction of the team going? And that's what he's now is going to decide this winter.
0: Yeah. I mean, and that's the risk you take when you don't make up your mind before the end of the season is that you might have that pseudo awkwardness for next year. But I-, I think that'll be forgiven. And if we go through all of this again, a year from now, I don't think people will complain too much about that. Like, I think people get into something like that. You know, it strikes me to another parallel with Cal. So 95 is the year that you come back from the strike and you know, a big part of trying to get fans feeling good about baseball again was the whole Cal Ripken breaking the Lou Gehrig streak thing. Here you have this season, fans back in ballparks off the pandemic. And, you know, Zimmerman is out there. And I think there's a lot to what you said that he does this for the fans, right? We've, We've had so few great moments as fans over the last 18 months because of this thing. And so to have something like that was pretty cool. You know, like that's a scene that I don't know, eight months ago was hard to fathom, right? A a ballpark that was jam-packed, people celebrating something like that. So to have something like that was pretty neat. And uh, I'm glad we got to see it. And we'll see. It'll be a very interesting offseason when it comes to Ryan Zimmerman, as it will be for a lot of different nationals. So we're not going to get neck deep into what happened in this game. Just do want to hit on a few things. Uh, Juan Soto ends up ending his otherwise spectacular season in relatively quiet fashion. You know, now looking back on it, He was out of gas over these final few games. I think an off day down the stretch here might have done him some good, but whatever. Uh, He goes 0 for 4 with an intentional walk, three strikeouts in this game. So some of the final numbers for Juan, he finishes number one in the majors and on base percentage at 465, 36 points better than the next best total of 429 by our old pal Bryce Harper. Juan finishes number three in the majors in OPS at 999. He just misses an OPS of 1,000 and Juan finishes number three in the majors in batting average at 313. So, you know, quiet end to an otherwise great season for Juan Soto. I don't know how much this will impact whatever MVP votes he was going to get. We don't have the final advance numbers out yet. I think those will help to tell the tale, but suffice it to say, an all-time great season for Juan Soto, certainly in D.C. baseball history
1: whatever the final numbers wound up being. And yeah, they're just slightly lower than they were a week ago. And that 999, that one hit me a little bit. Like, oh man, one more hit, one more walk, whatever it was would have done the difference. I, I thought he was going to get on base in the ninth and that Josh Bell was going to come up as the tying run because then we could say one final time that the boys had battled down to the end. And unfortunately, he was caught looking at the final pitch of the season. I was stunned by that. I thought that he would take some more hacks in that at bat. So that was unfortunate, but that does not take away at all from what he did this season. Now, was it an MVP season? I don't know. I kind of felt like because of the situation he and the team were in, that he needed to really finish it all the way through the finish line strong. And he was making a charge there. And then the last week, Colorado and this series, it did cool off considerably. Now, Bryce Harper also got cold at the end. Fernando Tatis's team fell apart in the second half of the season. You know who the best player at the end of the year might have been, especially on a contending team? And that's Trey Turner, who not only won the batting title, but he finished on a tear at the plate. And I wonder if anyone, as they now sit down to decide what they're going to do, if they might consider him. I know a lot of people in San Francisco were saying that Brandon Crawford deserved consideration. So those would be maybe the more traditional, you know, best players on the best teams kind of thing. But it's wide open. I honestly don't know what the answer to this one is. And this may be a case of the voting, it's not just about who gets the most first place votes, but how are they ranked one through five? It's a it's a point system from the top down. You vote for ten players and it all counts in the end. And so you could have a wide range of where people fit. And it may be that like whether somebody pads Soto second or fifth is gonna ultimately help decide who ends up winning the thing. So I honestly don't know. I don't have a vote for that. I have a Cy Young vote, which I still am deciding on, by the way. And I really don't know what I would do with the MVP vote. I'm not sure. I mean, I haven't had to analyze it the same way I would if I was a voter, but I'm honestly not sure because these last couple weeks, we had a lot of twists and turns, and I don't think there's any one clear-cut right answer to it. I think you can make a case for a lot of guys now.
0: Yeah, I think a great final week would have really helped one out because he had a lot of steam and a lot of momentum and was getting a lot of attention and he ends up going out with this whimper. But whatever, whether he gets MVP or not, we know the season that Soto ended up having. 3535, or check out his website, zenithlegal.com. This is an unprecedented time in the legal market and many top firms are looking to expand. Call Mason today. Zenith Legal also works with associates and distinguishes itself on personal service. Zenith Legal doesn't just spam resumes out to law firms. Zenith Legal talks to the right people and gets your resume in front of the decision makers who matter. Whether you are a Rainmaker partner or a mid-level associate, give Mason Kalfas at Zenith Legal a call today to accelerate your career. Call today, 202-486-3535.
2: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
5: he's been terrific for us the whole season he had, a, he had a terrific spring training then got sidetracked with with covid and uh, and i think that he turned a lot of naysayers early in the season into into, into believers and as uh, you know, a guy that uh, at 28 uh, 29 years old had a career eight 800 plus ops and uh, that was the player that we traded for and, and you know that's the player we got
0: Josh Bell does end up ending his season in strong fashion. Bell on Sunday, two for three with a double, a single, and a walk. He finishes with an OPS of 823. Uh, Such a far cry from where he was at in April. It really is a lesson to remember of a guy can look really bad early in a season, like supremely bad, like all-time bad, and he can still end up having a really good season. That's one of the unique things about baseball. This is not a 17-game season. This is not even an 82-game season. This is 162. April is one month out of six, and you can completely change the narrative of your season. And Josh Bell did that in 2021. It's something to remember.
1: And it's also a reminder, you know, we laugh when Mike Rizzo says it, but there's some truth to it. You look at the back of a guy's baseball card, especially an established player. Generally speaking, at the end of 162, they're going to come somewhere close to what you've come to expect from them, provided they weren't injured or had something else going on that would significantly alter them. And Josh Bell had a track record. Now, we also knew coming in that he was a streaky hitter, that in 2019 with the Pirates, he was phenomenal in the first half and then kind of collapsed in the second half, and you saw what the end-up numbers were. This year, it was a little bit the opposite direction, although he was better for far longer than he was bad. Those first six weeks were awful, but he was really, really good the rest of the way. And I think it, it creates an interesting dilemma now moving forward. I mean, the way Mike Rizzo spoke about him before the game today makes you say that he does believe he is a big part of this moving forward, not just for his contributions on the field, but Rizzo raved about what he's meant in the clubhouse. And obviously, we know in the community, what he has meant as well. And so he's got a year left. He'll be arbitration. He'll probably make somewhere in the range of $10 million, I'm thinking, next year. But I think there's an interesting question there of, what do you do? Are you looking to lock him up longer term if you think he is that important to you? Or are you saying, you know what, we're just going to play it out for one more year and then see where we are? Or would you say, he just finished really strong and we're going into next season and we probably aren't thinking we're winning in 2022. Is his value as high as it's going to get and make a move? I don't think that's going to happen. I really don't. Not the way that Rizzo was talking about him. But it certainly is something that should be at least in the back of everyone's minds. And that would go a long way toward telling us what their intentions really are in 2022. I think he's back. I think he's their cleanup hitter behind Soto, and that's what they're going to build their lineup around. But they only have him for one more year. And there is going to be this question of, is he part of the long-term plan, or is he just here for one more year or even less than one more year?
0: Yeah, I mean, it certainly could be a trade chip for next season. So you see how next season goes, and then you flip him mid-year if, in fact, things aren't going your way. The tricky thing with Bell is that guys who fit his profile just aren't that valuable anymore, like big lumbering sluggers who hit for power. Now, Bell has added some value this year right, with what he did defensively at first and the fact that he could play some left field. Heck, he was a starting left fielder on Sunday. So that helps the cause. But I do wonder, like, if you do want to extend them, what kind of a contract are we talking about? It's probably not that onerous of a deal. So if you do want to have them for another, say, three, four years, you could maybe make that happen. And given the labor uncertainty, given the economic uncertainties in baseball, you know, with the pandemic still going on, maybe that's a deal you can get done. So we'll see. I mean, it's, it's not a terrible idea if you want to extend the guy, but I, I just would be careful with paying guys like him just because these guys are almost like a dime a dozen now. These guys are all over the place they're not highly valued anymore. And so if you want to find another Josh Bell, you probably can do that at some point. But he had a really good season over the final five months and definitely want to give him a lot of credit for that. You no, know, it's funny with this Nats lineup and in, in a season in which we talk so much about the Nats being an older team and needing to get younger, their lineup for this game was just laden with the Viejos. I mean, it was, you know, one older player after another. I had to laugh looking at this. I mean, you had Ryan Zimmerman, you had Jordy Mercer, you had Alex Avila, you had all CD's Escobar. Like this was like one final like boom of hey, we're old and we're darn proud of it. And that was the Nationals in twenty twenty one in so many ways. But Alex Avila, at the very least, is retiring. That we know. And it was nice to see him get the hit that he got. You know, Alex Avila was actually sneaky productive as a batter this season. We certainly didn't see much of him. But when he hit, he actually wasn't that bad. He was certainly better than uh, you, you felt like he was going to be going into the year. But Avila comes through in a game that had like so many different moments, quote unquote. Avila in an Nats three-run fifth, a two-out, two-run double to right field For a 5-1 Nats lead, at that moment, it kind of felt like the Nats were going to cruise to a season-ending victory. Oh, the bullpen had some things to say about that, but good for Alex for going out on a high note with that hit. Now the set of the 1-0. Swing and a ground ball. Base hit through the hole into right field. Soto scores from third.
3: Bell around third coming home. The ball all the way to the bullpen fence. Avila's in standing at second with a two-run double.
1: That was great for him. And I know... You know, you brought up many times here in the last month, like, what is he still doing here? Why are they playing him? Did it, in the end, did that hamper anything? Did it hurt their development? No, I think it gave him a chance to finish out his career on a nice note. I'll tell you what, he caught some important games in terms of, like, catching young guys and even, you know, he helped Corbin, he helped Gray, and in this game, he helped the kid, Johanna Doan, pitch fantastic. And I think that had to be a calming influence for the 23-year-old to have him behind the plate. So I have no problem with how that all played out. He was shocked. He did not expect to get his moment like Zim did. He sort of thought, like, that's just reserved for Ryan Zerman. I'm not him in any way, shape, or form for this organization. And then you even saw the Red Sox came out of their dugout again for Alex Avila.
3: Well, as the last half inning ended, Alex Avila went to the mound, what he would normally do with a new pitcher, Kyle Figgin, going into the game. And there was nobody else on the field.
1: And the crowd was, you know, very much into that for him. So good for him. You know, he's going off into retirement. He's going to stay in baseball. He could do almost anything he wants to. And we haven't heard the last of him, I'm sure. But I agree with you. When he was healthy, he was productive. There weren't a ton of hits, but they all felt meaningful. There were a lot of extra base hits. He came through in some big spots. He had, you know, I think he worked well behind the plate for them, especially in the first half of the year. And, you know, it's too bad that he had the injuries that did and the season played out the way that he did because There's an alternate universe here where Jan Gomes and Alex Avila are their catchers all season long, and this is a contending team. We might have actually thought to ourselves, like, boy, this guy was pretty good for them, a good pickup for them.
0: Yeah. I mean, for the record, my issue was not with Alex. It was with the burial of Riley Adams over the final few weeks of the year, which I'm still trying to understand. All this guy did was produce since the Nats got him. He's a young piece. You know, you're trying to groom him for the future. And when it comes to working with pitchers, I would just be like, hey, how are these catchers going to get better working with pitchers if they don't work with these pitchers? So I just, I kind of felt like it was pointless. Like, okay, Avila's out there with Corbin. Okay, fine. But then what happens next year? Like guys like Riley Adams and Caber Ruiz have to get used to working with these guys. But Whatever. The Nats, man, there is no team that embraces older players like the Nats. I mean, that is for darn sure. Like the Nats, do they have golden girls airing in their clubhouse every day or something like that? Like they just, they love this kind of thing. They love the older player. And I mean, whether it's Para or Avila or Mercer or Escobar, Zimmerman, like this last month, think about it like this too. In this September, who were the call-ups? Who were the additions to the roster this month? They weren't younger players. It was Pora being activated. It was Avila being activated. Like, that, in a nutshell, is the 2021 Nationals.
1: You're not going to believe this, but the song that they played over the PA system right after the game ended was Thank You for Being a Friend, the so, theme from the Golden really? Girls. Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was.
0: <laughs> there it is. There it is. Right there. Okay, <laughs> Blanche. And everyone else, Dorothy, okay, they're all on display at Nats Park. Golden Girls and Matlock, I guarantee you those two shows are in the Nats Clubhouse on a daily basis because that's what everyone watches, all right? Oh, man.
4: Mom, I am not playing gin with you anymore. You'll be back. You know why? You're too competitive. It's always been your worst feature. (laughs) Actually, your ears are your worst
2: feature.
1: (laughs) Hey, Nats fans, are you looking to buy or sell a home or an investment property? If so, contact Jamie Coppersmith and the Coppersmith Group at McInerney Associates. A huge Nats fan right from the get-go in 2005, Jamie has repeatedly been recognized by Washingtonian Magazine as a top-producing real estate agent across the DMV. Referred to by a client as a Jedi Master of Real Estate, he will bring his expertise to bear on your behalf helping you understand and navigate this challenging real estate market. Jamie is a five-tool agent who's as patient as Juan Soto at the plate. He has his own version of Moneyball, a strategic and statistical market-based analysis that balanced with a deep respect for your specific real estate needs, goals, and timeline. So, whether buying or selling, call Jamie Coppersmith today at 202-525-7471 or visit his website at thecoppersmithgroup.com. That's Coppersmith, with a K.
3: Ramon Vasquez on the lines at first in the pitch. Swing and a miss at a slider. And down goes Kike Hernandez. That ball is immediately underhanded by Avila to the Nationals' bat boy. That'll be authenticated as well as the first strikeout of the Major League career of Yoan Adon. And what a breaking ball that was.
0: Yoan Adon. How about this guy on Sunday? I mean... Joanna Doan, people gotta understand this, okay? So the Nats on Sunday recall Adone from AAA Rochester. Joanna Doan is not like Cade Cavalli or something like that. Joanna Doan had thrown a total of 18 innings above the high A level in the minors this season. The Nats bring him up for this game, and in a monster game from a Red Sox perspective, he does a really good job. Two runs in five and two thirds innings. The second run scored on a two out infield single by Christian Vasquez off Patrick Murphy in the top of the six. Don had nine strikeouts versus three walks, a hit by pitch, and a wild pitch. He gave up six hits, a homer, and five singles. He threw 94 pitches over the five and two-thirds innings. I mean, this is another instance of a guy who really has no business pitching for the Nats, certainly has no business pitching well for the Nats, doing just that. Not an easy spot, but he does a good job. Good for him. That was really
1: cool to see. He really lived up to the moment. And, you know, we talked the other day about, you know, why were they picking him for the assignment, maybe over others. And you sense that they felt like he had not only the stuff, but the temperament to deal with it. And boy, did he have the temperament to deal with it. He was fantastic. He wasn't phased at all by the situation. I've heard about him for a few years. I mean, they've liked him, but obviously very raw and experienced 17 starts at single A this year. Only three at double A and then one at triple A, and he gets this assignment. But based on what we saw, the way he handled it, he struck out nine. Only Steven Strasburg has ever struck out more in his major league debut as a member of the Nationals and went right after them. Like I said, not phased at all, came back out for the sixth inning, which I thought was pushing it, but he did okay with all that. He is a guy that we're going to be talking about in the future. Now, I don't know if that means he's part of the rotation plan to start next season. But he is definitely going to be in the mix at some point along the way. And you couldn't have asked if you're Joanna Don or if you're the Nationals could not have asked for this to work out any better than that. That was absolutely worth it to see him handle that moment. And he just won over a lot of people within the organization and within the fan base as well for the way that he pitched in this game.
0: Yeah. And that's why the whole thing about like putting your best foot forward. You don't know what your best foot forward is sometimes. Like, if you're the Nationals, did they consider Adone the best foot forward? Maybe, maybe not. But that ended up being a best foot forward with how well he ended up pitching. And then, of course, the bullpen had its final say in a game this year. And there's something symbolic about Eric Fetty and Kyle Finnegan both struggling for the Nats on Sunday. Each guy's last name beginning with the letter F. And uh, the Nationals' bullpen gets a big fat F for its work certainly over the final two months of this season. So, man, Eric Fetty, you talk about ending your season in a rough way. This guy got off to such a nice start this year, and everything just unraveled. And Fetty, in a Red Sox three-run seventh in this game, faces six batters, gets just two outs, gets charged with three runs on a double and three singles. And then your Nationals Pitcher of the Year, Kyle Finnegan, in the top of the ninth, gives up a one-out, two-run homer by Rafael Devers. Uh, Only one of the runs is earned Thanks to a fielding error by Jordy Mercer. You just knew that this bullpen could not keep quiet for one game to end the season. The bullpen had to have its say, and uh, sure enough, the bullpen gave it up once again on Sunday.
1: You said earlier on the Avila hit that they're up 5 1, and you're thinking they might pull this off, and I will admit that I just did not see that happening because I knew what still needed to take place over the rest of this game for the Nationals to be victorious, and I knew it was going to take a lot more than five runs to win the game. Now, here's the pertinent stat for the weekend the Nationals pitching staff in innings one through five gave up two runs. In innings six through nine, they gave up 14 runs. And if that just doesn't tell you everything about this team, if you knew nothing, if you didn't follow the Nationals all year, if you're a Red Sox fan, this is the first time you got to see the Nationals at all. This weekend told you everything you need to know about them. And this game specifically, told you everything you need to know about them. It is the number one issue above all else. It's pitching, But specifically bullpen, yes, we've talked about things that need to happen rotation-wise, but they did not have a major league bullpen for the last two months, certainly, of the season. And it felt like it just kept getting worse and worse. And the handful of guys that had moments were worn down by the end and had nothing left in the end. And it all came to a head there in, honestly, unsurprising fashion. I was not surprised by anything that happened in the final few innings of this game. What does it mean moving forward? I don't know, but Rizzo, in his pregame talk to us, was pretty clear in saying that the pitching is their number one priority. It has to improve. Now he kept stressing that they are built to win with starting pitching.
5: Our mantra here has been that uh, you know starting pitching is is the most important thing, and uh, and you know pitchers have to go deep in games give us give
1: us a a chance to win. That is still his in his mind the best way to be successful. But he also understands you do need guys at the back end of games to close it out, even if you do get the starting pitching. So he has a big challenge this winter to figure out who out of all these guys we saw are part of the plan and who out of all these guys should not be part of the plan. And then how do you go about finding others to take over?
0: Yeah. And, you know, with a guy like Fetty, especially, you can't face the Marlins every outing. And when you face a big boy lineup like the Red Sox, this is what it's like. You know, the American League East is a cauldron, every year, you've got lineups that are merciless. And you get a taste of that in a series like this from an ad standpoint. And the Red Sox and the Blue Jays and the Yankees and the Rays, these are teams that consistently hit. And when you see a guy like Fetty who feasts on the lowly Marlins every year, okay, that's dandy. That's fine and great. But against Boston, against the big boys, what happens? And and he just got roasted in this game. <laughs>
6: Hey, NatChat listeners! Real quick, we'll get back to Alan Mark. A brief interlude for me, if you don't mind. I want to thank uh, some people who are really big part of the podcast this year. It takes a village here in the DMV and across the globe. So, uh, if you can give me a second here, just want to give some shout outs. First off, I want to thank our sponsors throughout the season at various points. Walter's Sports Bar, Jamie Coppersmith, Realtor at McInerney Associates. You heard his ad earlier in the episode. Zenith Legal, same goes. For that, Silver Branch Brewing Company, FanDuel, Sunday Scary CBD, and Real Estate Rachel at Compass Real Estate. Our partnerships that included Bethesda Big Train, the Fred Nats, and 1061 ESPN in Richmond. Want to thank James Gordon, our intern over the summer, who also pinch hit in September for a little bit. Excellent job and work by him. A bright future is ahead. Best of luck to his White Sox, too. He's a big uh, White Sox fan as well I want to thank our guests we had some really solid guests in year one aimed to have even more in year two ryan zimmerman max scherzer dr anthony fauci seth davis bob kendrick the president of the negro leagues baseball hall of fame jim callis who uh, gave us all the insight on the new prospects and that's acquired and of course our guy paulo espino and lastly i want to thank the most important part and that's you the fans the listeners thank you for subscribing downloading tweeting, buying and wearing shirts, donating at the end of the season, five-star reviews, nonstop enthusiasm, even through a rebuild, all the pictures we've been sent, it's just been nonstop love all throughout the season, and we cannot thank you enough. And uh, I think that one of the reasons that inspired me to start this podcast was I think Washington, D.C. is an underserved baseball market. I think it could be not only a good baseball town, but a great baseball town if given the right resources and right attention. And based on what I saw this year, I think we're on our way to a good first step. So, again, thanks to all of you so much. We can't do it without you and uh hopefully next year when i'm giving you this little end of season state of the pod we are previewing an october run in 2022 who knows but either way again thanks to everyone it's been such a great first season and uh let's do it again next year
5: well, I've seen some. Uh, I've seen a lot of positives, some negatives, uh, but all in all, our young players—that you know, the, the you know core group—that's going to be uh, our future. Uh, I see a lot of positives and, and a lot of improvements.
0: So let's get to Rizzo. So you were out there. Uh, Mike has not spoken often this season, but he did his sort of uh, end of season wrap-up session with you guys on Sunday prior to the game. I I thought it was kind of funny, but I don't blame him for doing this. Most executives do this kind of a thing. He would not use the word rebuild. He kept saying reboot, which, you know, is like a politically correct way of saying rebuild, which, you know, fine, whatever you want to say that. Like you said, he certainly emphasized the Nationals are still a pitching dependent team, a starting pitching first team. I thought some good questions were asked, you know, like, have the last two months changed Mike's thinking on a timeline? And, you know, he was evasive with a lot of his answers. He gave kind of some short answers, too. You could tell he didn't want to commit to anything. You know, he got asked about having comped the situation now to the situation in 2009. And he's like, well, in 2012, I didn't know we were going to be that good that season. So maybe we're really good sooner rather than later. He did give the line of we're still trying to win a World Series every year. So
5: our goal is to win. It's to to win the division. It's to win the World Series each and every year.
0: You know, pretty noncommittal, which is fine. You know, I don't expect him to lay out exactly what he's thinking. What jumped out at you in listening to him speak for the twenty-plus minutes
1: that he spoke? I think what jumped out to me was that there wasn't necessarily anything all that definitive; that it was a little bit more cryptic. But I think reading between the lines, what I got from it was a couple of things. Number one, he's not happy at all with the way these last two months played out. That while he knows that he did what he had to do at the trade deadline, what that then looked like over the final two months of the season is not acceptable in his mind. He's not saying he was expecting them to be contending down the stretch, but to look the way they did, to lose the many games as they did, and for the pitching staff in particular to be what they were, that was not acceptable to him. And so what I see happening here, because the, the other part of it is, he sees next year, from what I could gather, as an important year to show real improvement. He's going to say we're always trying to win, of course. But even short of that, they're not tanking next year. They're not going in next year and saying, we're not going to spend any money and we're going to try to lose 100 games and get the number one draft pick. That is not at all what I got from him and his mindset. He wants next year to be a stepping stone. He knows that in all likelihood, they're not going to win next year. But he wants by the end of next year to be able to say, "Okay, we're now getting closer. We're on the cusp. We've identified pieces. We've filled out the roster with guys who are going to help us. And I would bet that the moves they make this winter are designed not to... He's not going to do anything that's going to make a big difference in the long run, but I think he's going to make moves that are designed to help them try to win some more games next year without hurting the long-term picture. He's not going to do anything that's going to hamstring them down the road, but he's going to have some money to spend. And I think he's going to want to have a more representative team in 2022 while all the young guys coalesce. And then hopefully by 2023, they are ready to kind of spend big and be players again in this whole thing.
0: Yeah. So a few things. The Nationals, Legitimately ended up being one of the worst teams in the sport this year. The Nats ended up 65 and 97, lost eight of their last nine games. This was the Nats' third worst season since the franchise came to DC, beginning with the 05 season. Nats finished last in the National League East, finished with the third worst record in the National League, finished with the fourth worst run differential in the National League at minus 96. By basically any measurement, this was a terrible baseball team this season. And what needs to always be remembered is this was a bad team prior to the sell-off. Like I think that alternate universe in which the Nats don't engage in the sell-off, I'm not sure that the final record ends up being that much better than this record. Like, Yes, having Max Scherzer would have helped. Having Trey Turner would have helped. But this still probably would have been a team that lost, I don't know, in the upper 80s, maybe even into the 90s. It was not a good team. And it was a team that got blown out with a peculiar regularity. There was a lot wrong with that team. But the thing I keep coming back to with the Nats in this timeline from being good again is I just think so much of this is out of their control. And Mike sort of alluded to this. If the Josiah Grays and the K Ruizes develop quickly and effectively, then yeah, the Nats can be good again sooner rather than later. But if they don't, or if they flop, you know, if they end up being bust, then there's not going to be much that you can do about that because there's only going to be so much that the Nats can do this offseason realistically. There's only going to be so much the Nats can do next season. You're not going to have another sell-off like you had this year. You're not going to trade away eight guys and get back 12 prospects. So you're kind of at the mercy for now of Gray and Ruiz and Lane Thomas and Riley Adams and Cade Cavalli and you know Patrick Corbin rebounding, things like that. You're at the mercy of those guys. You're at the mercy of people who are already in your organization and so that's why it's so important that the Nats get back to doing player development well and coaching these guys up and getting the most that they can out of these guys. But, you know, there's sort of almost a uh, you're almost kind of powerless to an extent if you're the Nats right now, just because you're not done acquiring players, but you've done a lot of that work. And so now you're kind of just at the mercy of how these guys go over the next year or so.
1: Yeah, it's almost like their off season actually happened during that 24 hour period on July 29th and 30th. Yeah. You know, there are moves that are going to be made and they are going to do it. And I think there's going to be some relief help and maybe another starter. I think there's another position player or two to go after. But these are not going to be massive moves, I don't think. I think the group that they're going to go into it with is pretty much already here. And, you know, he pointed out, I think one reason he's not going to rule out that they might be good next year, but he's acknowledging that that only happens if Strasburg and Corbin and Gray and Ross essentially, and maybe Cavalli at some point lead the way in their rotation. And he's acknowledging that he doesn't know that for a fact will be the case. Those are unknowns. But I think that's where he keeps the open mind. But I don't think he, I didn't get the impression that he's saying, we're going to go out and fortify that pitching staff with some other big name guys, some more sure things, and just forget about those others who were such a mess this year, either because of injury or performance. No, whatever hopes they have, For taking a a big step forward, a bigger than expected step forward next year, is gonna rest on the shoulders of, like you said, the young guys developing quickly, but also the old guys being healthy and productive again. And that is such a huge unknown as we've talked about.
0: So, in terms of what now for the nationals, I mean the baseball offseason is so odd in that there like isn't a timeline in so many ways. And so, like, things could happen immediately, things could happen like six weeks from now especially with the labor uncertainty this offseason, that makes things even murkier. Do you expect any Nationals news over the next few weeks? Do you think it's going to take some time? What's kind of on your radar as someone who covers a team here?
1: The things that I would expect to happen here relatively soon, and maybe very soon within a few days, would be any changes to the coaching staff, which I do think are possible. That would be high on the list. And changes to the front office, player development, scouting. He said, without giving anything really all, all away, He said that, yeah, there are going to be some changes in the front office and that you've had 10 to 12 years of doing things and being really successful, but that sometimes it's just time to get a new set of eyes in, start doing things a different way. So I thought that was pretty telling. I'm sure he already in his mind knows where some changes are going to occur. So those are the kind of things that I would expect here in the next few weeks as the rest of the baseball world is focused on the playoffs. You're not going to hear about roster moves. That stuff won't happen until after the World Series when a free agency begins, and they don't have a whole lot of decisions. There aren't like options for them to pick up or not. There really isn't anything along those lines. So it's going to be a while till we start hearing about players, but I would say coaching staff probably first within the next week, and then player development, scouting, other front office changes and turnover, and I do expect there to be some. They may not be a lot of big names and things that make people you know, drop whatever they're doing, but they could be significant in spelling out how they intend to reshape this organization in some ways and maybe start doing things a little differently than they have for the last decade.
0: Yeah. I mean, we know they've had significant turnover in their analytics department. So at the very least that needs to be addressed. And it's hard to gauge like what is significant and what isn't because it's almost like a retroactive thing. Like we're not going to know for a few years it's, it's tricky with the Nats. You don't hear a lot about executives not named Mike Rizzo. Like You have to be a real Nats wonk to know executives beyond Mike Rizzo. And so you kind of fly blind with this stuff, but you know that it matters. And especially with how their player development has kind of fallen apart here, this is a big deal. I, I mean, to me, this is the number one thing of the offseason. They've got to fix player development. They've got to get back to drafting well and developing players well. And so whatever you need to do that, do that. Mark Lerner doesn't speak often, but he does speak. Uh, I know he's spoken to you. I know he speaks sometimes in the offseason. Do you think Mark Lerner will be speaking anytime soon?
1: Probably not in like a formal public setting. Uh, he, he has very much in the last year kind of stayed back and stayed out of it. He put out that statement on the trade deadline saying a lot of great things about Max and Trey, of course. But no, I think he will probably be more so in the shadows now, they're planning to have their Winter Fest in December. So maybe there's a, a point there that he does something, whether it's with media or whether it's putting out statements of his own. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a fascinating question that even Mike Rizzo can't answer. He, you know, we, we ask him things about money, and he basically says like, "Money's not going to be an issue. They've told me I can, you know, we will have the resources to do whatever it is we need to do." Well, that's of course what any GM is going to say. Deep down, do we know what their budget is? Is the payroll going up? is the payroll going down? Are they investing more in scouting and player development by actually spending more money in those regards? Are they going to suddenly become even bigger players on the international market, anything like that? I don't know the answer to that. Uh, I'm not sure any of us really does, but I think that's telling as well. While the attendance there got better there at the end of the season, it was a down year. I mean, they lost money. They didn't have the revenue that they would have normally had under better circumstances, both in terms of the pandemic and because of the record. I would imagine that season ticket sales are not going to go real well this winter, and they're looking at a smaller base next year. So what kind of orders is Mike Rizzo getting from ownership in terms of where they can go with payroll and other financial matters? And I don't know the answer to that. I think we're going to have to wait and see what they do, and that will maybe kind of tell us what kind of orders he's had.
0: Yeah, the payroll thing is interesting, too, because the Scherzer contract is off the books, The Nats have not signed anyone to a big money deal in a few years now. You have to go back, I guess, to Patrick Corbin, right? And that was in that 2018—
1: The Strasburg extension.
0: The Strasburg extension, okay. So yeah, all right, so that that would be in the 2019 offseason— but in terms of like a free agent acquisition, you have to go back to Corbin, right? 2018, 2019. If the learners want to spend, they can. I mean, there are a number of free agents out there this offseason. I personally would not advocate for them to go bonkers, but in theory, they could do it, you know? So I, I think it's always good when ownership speaks. You don't have to speak all the time, but, you know, the managing principal owner, I, I think it's worth hearing from him, especially off a season like this one. So hopefully at some point, uh, we hear from Mark Lerner. Yeah, it's fascinating to me with the Nationals. This was a bad year, no doubt, but. This is such an intriguing time. Like to me, you know, we're all different with how we follow sports, but to me, the most interesting perspective to follow sports from is that general manager perspective, that front office perspective, and like you know, team building, roster construction. How do you go forward? What do you do? And just the Nats are—they're in such an interesting spot because. There are so many ways you can go with this. There are so many ways you could attack this. You know, do you engage in the full-scale rebuild? Do you try to refuel the airplane while it's still flying in midair? Can you make this a quick turnaround and get back to being good again sooner rather than later? And uh, you know, it's also unique too, like we've said, because you have this franchise player already in Juan Soto. Like most teams that are rebuilding, they're seeking that guy. The Nats already have that guy, so this is a very unique circumstance. There aren't many comps to what the Nats have here, a bad team with this already great player. He's young, he's under team control for years to come. You don't want to waste him. So you don't want this to take a long time. So I think these next few months are really going to be intriguing for the Nationals.
1: Yeah, I agree. Uh, You're right. This is not a typical situation that a team would find itself in, in a rebuild, reboot, whatever you want to call it. I would say the closest one that we've seen around baseball, this is maybe the Red Sox of a few years ago, they win the World Series in 18, 19 was kind of a disaster. They blew it up. They traded Mookie Betts, the Dodgers, a move that everybody panned at the time. Well, look at them. They're going back to the playoffs again here in 2021. Doesn't mean that's a perfect blueprint for it. And the Red Sox have a different kind of financial base and model than the Nationals do. But there is evidence that you can rebuild quickly if uh, you do it the right way. You have the right people and, and you have the resources and the commitment to doing that. You know, it's also fascinating because of the division. The Braves end up winning the division with, what, 88 wins? The Phillies end with 82. The Mets end, I think, 77. So this is a division that it doesn't take a ton. This isn't the AL East. You're not going to have to win 100 to win the division. So it's a little easier to get back on the horse quickly. Everything that I interpret from what we've heard from everyone suggests to me that they look at, right now, this was the low point. Next year is a stepping stone year. And then 2023 is the year where they hope it all comes together. They don't know for sure it's going to, but that would be the hope. And then certainly by 24, which is Soto's last year before as a free agent. But so many things have to happen between now and then, and there's no way for them to truly know how it's all going to play out. The best thing they can do right now is to try to keep finding ways to add more talent to this mix so that you have a larger pool of candidates who ultimately become the guys who lead this team, you know? You can say, okay, there are some building blocks here potentially right now, but how many of them do we know for certain are? We don't know that yet. And so they still need to find a way to get more of those so that a year from now we're saying there's a much wider group of building blocks at their disposal. And we know they're not all going to pan out, but there seem to be enough of them that they can now ascend to become a contending team again.
0: Yeah, they still have work to do with this farm system. Uh, This is still not a very well regarded farm system. It's in better shape, but it's still not in great shape. And that rebuilding timeline, I mean, that would be lovely if it works out that way for the Nationals. The way, though, it usually goes is your fall off year is just the beginning of being bad. So, like, you think you're still good, you have a year in which everything comes apart, and then you're bad for a few years, and then you can start talking about a breakout year. You don't normally go from your fallout year right into the breakout year the next year. That the Nats are trying to do that. I mean, I hope they do that, but that's aggressive and that's not the way it usually goes. So more power to them if they can do that. But that's going to be tricky. And like I said, I think a lot of this is out of their hands. Like these guys, they already have are the keys to this whole thing. And. What you really gotta hope for is that those guys do well. As much attention is paid to Strasburg and Corbin, and those guys matter for sure. You could make the case that the Cavallis and the Grays and the Ruizes and these guys, the Jackson Rutledges, they may matter more because you know, Corbin, he's got three years left on the deal. Okay. If he's if, if he's shot, if he's not a good pitcher anymore. It's not good, but it's also not the end of the world. I mean, Strasbourg, that's kind of a different story. But these other guys, like you can have these guys for years to come. They can be the foundations. They can be your next Jordan Zimmermans and Ryan Zimmermans and Ian Desmonds and Max Scherzers and people like that. That's really what you need. You need that next core of guys. And do you have that core in place? We don't know. Hopefully we find out soon. So we'll see. Well, this is the final installment of the Nats Chat podcast for now. Uh, we're going to be coming to you with periodic shows during the off season. We don't have an exact schedule, and that's because we're going to kind of do this as events warrant and as events dictate. So the best way to follow us is, uh, first of all, to follow Nats Chat on Twitter, at Nats underscore chat. And for those who aren't on Twitter, and I certainly don't blame anyone for not being on Twitter, but you can read the tweets without being on Twitter. If just go to twitter.com slash Nats underscore chat, you can see the Twitter page. So, you know, we'll always put out episodes on that. Uh, You definitely want to be a subscriber to the podcast. So you'll always get new episodes when they come out and subscribing doesn't cost you anything. So if you haven't yet subscribed, feel free to do that. I know many of you, most of you read Mark Zuckerman, follow Mark on Twitter. You obviously should do that. MassinSports.com at Mark Zuckerman. I'm on Twitter at Al Galdi, and uh, we've had a ton of fun doing this. I've had a ton of fun working with you, Mark, and working with Tim Shovers. Uh, It's been a thrill, and I'm looking forward to the offseason, and uh, like we said, this could be a very interesting offseason for the Nationals, so uh, we should have some good discussions here over the next few months.
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to what these offseason episodes are like, and I I don't know. You don't know yet. Tim doesn't know. We're kind of going to play this by ear. We know there will be news to discuss. That's not a question at all. It's just a matter of what it is and when it happens. And I can tell you that, you know, as a a beat reporter, part of me is now relieved. Okay, the season's over. I get to go be with my family, not be at the ballpark every night, to watch the playoffs on TV, which I'm very much looking forward to. But the offseason is not a vacation. (laughs) Not for us. There is a lot of work. A lot of stuff happens. There are times that the offseason is even more hectic than the season is. And I don't know what this offseason has in store, both from the national standpoint, but also from an MLB standpoint. There's a lot of uncertainty with the CBA expiring December 1st. And that could mean a flurry of early news. It could mean a really quiet offseason until that's resolved. We don't really know. So I look forward to being able to talk with you again whenever that is. And uh, to talk with all of you out there listening to us, and as we've repeatedly been saying over the last week, but say it one more time, we cannot thank you all enough for listening, for interacting, for your dedication and your loyalty to us. It really means everything. It has made it all worthwhile We put in a lot of hours, a lot of late nights to put these episodes together, and it has 100% been worth it in my mind.
0: Yeah, no doubt. It's been a ton of fun. You launch something like this, you don't know how it's going to go. You don't know how it's going to be received. And the fact that it's been received as well as it has been, uh, we appreciate that so much. The success of the podcast is a credit to you guys who listen and support the thing. So thank you. Uh, We can't say that enough. And also do want to thank Tim Chauvers. This was his baby. This was something he schemed up. You know, Mark and I are just kind of along for the ride here. Shovers is the Juan Soto. Mark and I were the... Uh we Jordy Mercer and Alex Avila. I'm not sure who's who. We'll figure it out, I guess, maybe after this episode. But
1: Hopefully one of us isn't retiring now, though.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Chauvers is the guy. I'm spitting up blood like Jordy Mercer after these episodes. But Chauvers is the guy who, uh, who schemed this whole thing up. So we thank him for doing this. And we're thrilled that we're going to be doing some off-season shows. And we're thrilled that we'll be back with you next season. Always know you can get yourself a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.com dot square dot site. You can email the podcast in addition to following us on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. The email address is Nats chat podcast at gmail.com. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats chat podcast. And we're going to leave you now with the highlight of Sunday season finale.
3: Ryan Zimmerman is being saluted with a standing ovation, which includes the Boston Red Sox. Their entire team is out on the edge of the grass, giving Zimmerman an ovation. He's saluting the crowd as he's being taken out of the game. He's patting his chest, looking to all corners of Nationals Park. Davey Martinez is hobbling out to greet him. (laughs) Zim mimicking Davey's gates. And they embrace in front of the first base side dugout. Well, the Nationals didn't come out of the dugout to take the field. Zim went out and he turned around. He was the only one on the field. And then everyone came out to applaud, his teammates to hug him. And then Alex Cora led his team out onto the field. This was something to see.
4: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium?